brother. All right, I want to open up with just a couple of verses, scripture. Each week I'm trying to give you, while I'm giving you a new scripture, just to remember, maybe memorize, consider, meditate over as we're going through the theology of Christ's intercessory work. It's Romans eight twenty six and 27. And Paul says here, by the word of God, the spirit of God, in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our study and in what's today is going to be Christ's instructional prayer, Matthew 6 and Luke 11. Father, thank you. What a privilege it is to call you our Father and to know that you triumphantly, majestically rule and reign from heaven above. And while, Lord, you are truly sanctified, truly separated from us. You are not distant from us, Lord, in heart and in spirit. And Father, we ask, just as we have read, that the Holy Spirit would come now and and not only intercede on our behalf, those groanings too deep for words that we can barely utter, but Father, that your Spirit would guide us and, and counsel us and instruct us and to Lord, I pray, reveal to us the the blessed privilege we have in communing with you and praying to you and to receive your help even in our prayers. So bless this time, I pray. Bless all those here today. We pray for those, Lord, who are sick, who are suffering physically, who are struggling, Lord, spiritually, that your grace, your presence, Lord, your, your strength would abound to them. Lord, that they might be healed, that they might be revived in heart and soul, mind and body. In Jesus' name, amen. So thank you. It's good to see everybody here today. Um, Please get a couple fingers ready. Open to Matthew 6, Matthew chapter 6, and also Luke 11. We're going to look at both accounts as we go through this, but I want to read the broader context for each of these first before we get into them. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 5 and go down to verse 15. The Lord's instructing the disciples here, and he says in verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And... When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, 
for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. In a like manner, turn over, if you will, to Luke chapter 11. I'm not going to read the full context here. We're going to save the rest of the latter context for next week, Lord willing. But verses 1 through 4. And it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, Father, hallowed be, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Sorry, I'm just going to go to verse 4. But before we, we look at these texts in depth, and Lord willing, we'll get through it. If not, we're not in a rush. We'll save it for next week. There are, both of these passages are of the same, not the same event, but the same theme. They carry the same instructions, but they're two sets of instructions from our Lord on two different occasions. One, inspired author of Matthew being Jewish, while in Galilee he recorded this session in rather kind of a spontaneous manner of Christ and his disciples. The other, Luke, a Gentile, he recorded this while in Judea, where the disciples we see specifically ask the Lord, teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples. We want to know how it is to pray. But even though these these two separate inspired occasions, we only see slight variations, I think due to the background, the perspective, the personality, the author. But for us, they both share a harmony in the in the scriptural comprehensiveness and and the intellectual clarity that the Lord's conveying here for us as as instructions on how we should pray. But looking at this from a really broader, larger, contextual, and and even some cultural observations, what can we make of these two passages? Anything stand out right away? Okay. I'm I'm thinking bigger bigger context, but you're right. That's, That's there. When is good. Think about who's present and who's asking for help here for prayer. The disciples. They're from the nation of Israel, Jewish people. Some Gentiles are probably present, we don't know. But thinking that they're the chosen people of God, they have a history of Old Testament writings, of examples from the prophets of all these ancient writings of people praying, and yet they're asking for instruction on how to pray in these times. So little, little something to consider there. 
And what, what, we're, what they were accustomed to and typically seeing in their time from the Pharisees is what? What did we read in Matthew? Public pronouncement, showing off for themselves to see how great and grand, how eloquent they can pray in the synagogues. The, the street corners referenced here were, were the furthest, most point out into the intersections of traffic that they could go to preach and pronounce great prayers. So that's what the disciples, the people, the Jewish people of this time are accustomed to hearing. So a little bit strange. I think you know where I'm going with this. But what we see in in this template in both of these themes in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, what Brother Chris started pointing out here, is in this first first section we see a God-centeredness in the first part of the prayer. We haven't gotten to the fullness of the second part, but God-centered, very focused. It's very relational. It's between God and the believer, the father and the child, a holy one and a worshiper, a ruler and a subject, a master and a servant, a savior and a sinner, a guide and a pilgrim. So I think you're getting where I'm going with that. The second part of that we were going to get into, Lord willing, next time is mad, man's need. And in that, what kind of attitude should we have in prayer? What should be the focus of our requests in looking at our needs? You know, being unselfish, having a heart and a desire for intimacy with the Father, with the Lord. One of, one of reverence, one of loyalty, one of submission. Um, you can continue on humility, dependence, and also in it, I, you know, we're going to see a, a triumphant joy with a confidence in God's promises and what He promises us and what we can take hold of in prayer. But what don't we see prescribed by Christ in these two examples? Anything that He doesn't mention that's interesting to note? I think. Does he tell you to sit down or stand up or be on your face? Right. Posture is not critical. We see throughout the Old Testament, New Testament too, hands lifted on their face, kneeling, standing, prostate, whatever. But all of those, the posture is not that critical. He doesn't mention location. It is a closet, which we're going to get into, but everywhere. I mean, this, this really explains the pray without ceasing, praying wherever you are at any times, but avoiding these pretentious public displays of prayer that we saw in the Pharisees or what they saw. Um, There's no mention of time. You know, when you go into your closet, set your timer for 30 minutes. None of that. There's no mention of time, a duration of prayer. Yes? Hang on to that thought. We're going to get there. <laughs> we're we're going to be in the first section today, Lord. Yeah, but that that is a thinking that each new day, His mercies are new, our needs are new each day. Because I can't live in tomorrow, and I can't go back and live in the past. So yeah, give us this day, this new day. Um, that's that's a very relevant, very real 
prayer for our brothers and sisters in Cuba. Each day, Lord, where is our food going to come from? You know, so yeah, exactly. Um, But also what we don't see here as we do in our modern culture is that this prayer becomes a means or a mantra, um, how we can somehow through just reciting this prayer release some physical or even financial or material blessings just by rote response and, and repetition of this. You know, the, the Haganite realm of modern day of the name it and claim it, wealth and health and wealth and prosperity. So that's not the intent of this prayer. There's a lot more spiritual depth in here. But in Luke's account, like I said, we hear the disciples asking the Lord, almost begging him to teach us to pray. And, and in a very real sense, this serious request could be due to their observation of Christ praying on many different occasions. You know, seeing him going off. Luke has a number of accounts of him. Um, 321, he prayed at his own baptism. Uh, 442, he went away by himself. He had to get away from everybody. 516, it says the Lord went away into the wilderness. You know, not a pleasant place, not a safe place to go, but with the priority and the desire to be with the Father. 612, the Lord was on a mountain all night praying before he came down and selected his 12 disciples. And then immediately after that began ministering to a multitude in healing and serving them. And then from that, in Luke, he begins to present the Beatitudes. If Christ had to pray in order to do that, how much more do we do, we need to, in each of our daily activities and our service? So, so note, though, that his, his preface to these instructions also contain what we're not to do in prayer, uh, as how not to pray. But this is more of how we are to pray. This isn't to be, you know, specifically what to, we are to pray in a strict and rigid form. But can these prayers be used in a reverent manner of prayer in our time of, of personal lives and devotions? Absolutely. Absolutely. They're the Word of God. They're from Christ's lips himself. But they're not intended just to be a rote ritual. Okay, I go through this and pray, I'm done, I'm good. But as we're going to see, hopefully see in this, the, the richness, the depth of meaning that Christ had behind these very simple instructional declarations to us. So like I said, we're going to look at both of these accounts together. Um, but I want to look, take it in a, in a little bit of a segmented way because they are so rich. That's why I've broken it out in these five headings of the first part of the prayer. Our Father as it says in Matthew or in Luke, just Father. This reveals to us God's paternity, his, his God as our Father now. And this opening address is how we are to enter into prayer. We are praying to God. doesn't mean we can't pray to the Lord Jesus Christ either. They are a triune being, but as the Lord himself, as Jesus himself addresses the prayer to the Father, that is a wonderful way we should follow and approach prayer, is looking at the Godhead, the fatherhood of, of God. And this use of, of Christ saying Father is, he, he mentions it several times in the, in the Gospels, but not specifically as we're going to see here in a relational manner, which 
I think these first two words, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago or last week, for him to say our father before these disciples probably set them back on their heels a little bit, thinking, whoa, wait a minute, all we've ever heard is Yahweh Elohim, you know, speaking to not even being able to utter the name of God and hear this man, this professing to be the Son of God, says, our Father. Amazing. So, But these two words give us a, a glimpse to, as I've been saying in this study, it, it gives us a glimpse into the redemptive and mediatorial purpose that Christ was bringing in, in his kingdom that we're going to look at in a minute what he was going to reveal in this new covenant, this now fatherhood of God that we would share in through his salvation. But granting a great and high privilege that not everyone in this life, in this world, is has the opportunity to share in. To call the Yahweh Elohim of heaven and earth now our father. This is a, a very high and lofty privilege for the child of God to be able to do this. And Christ uses the word here, it's actually in Aramaic, um, is for dad or papa, for father. In Greek, it's pater, but this, this term, Abba, daddy, papa, has, has such a, a depth of endearment, of, of tenderness and great intimacy yet with such a respect and reverence it goes along with it that the Father deserves, of course, the Heavenly Father. But when he uses this possessive phrase in Matthew recorded for us, he says, our Father, he's emphasizing this this relational sense in this instructional prayer. And it's intended to link us together in the body of Christ. Our Father. We are, are joined together by him, and we can corporately include one another and pray for one another in this. There is a relational aspect. And Christ is not referring here to the fatherhood of God or the brotherhood of man. That's not what he's conveying at all. The, the only fatherhood for the unbeliever in, in, is their sense of God being a creator. Because spiritually, who is their true father? Satan, yeah, yeah. So John says in in chapter 1, verse 12, it's only those who have received Christ through faith are the ones who have the right to become or to be called the children of God and who then can pray in this manner to God as Father, as our Father. So when you think of the fatherhood of God, anything come to mind, and I'll give you a few seconds to think about that while I take a drink of water, but... In the fatherhood of God, what do you think of? Right. Right. Yes, sir. sir. Amen. I'm sorry. True. Yes, absolutely. And and in that, keep that thought going. In that adoption. What does that fatherhood bring us? Here, I'll, give you, I'll give you a hint. Here's what I'm going for. Is this not our foundation now in Christ to call God our Father, that we are now through Christ welcomed in a, being adopted into his family, that we can now, as Philippians 4, 6, we can enter his presence to make our requests known, 
to worship him, to, to supplicate and pray on behalf of one another. We have that firm foundation that will not be shaken, that we can stand on. Yes? Absolutely. Yeah, that's part of the fatherhood. What about our fear? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, brother. Would be, would be yeah. what? What? No, he's our perfect father. He he cares for us perfectly, perfect intimacy. He knows your needs and exactly what you need before you even ask it. He knows what's perfectly best for you, and what not to give you <laughs> when you ask for things. Yes, sister. Amen. Yep. Our our fear is settled. We know now true love through Christ as a perfect father would love us, loving us even in such a way that he knows best how to discipline us and correct us. Yes, brother. Right. There, there was still, I mean, there, they were recipients definitely of his grace and knew a relational aspect with him. Um, we don't have, as, uh, you know, them calling out, saying, our father, dad, Abba, in this way. But he, they did recognize him as a heavenly father, though they may not have expressed it that way. There was still that worshipful, can't even pronounce his name type fear. But there is definitely that relational fatherhood aspect that they shared in. Yeah, by faith. Only by faith. So, um. Our hope is settled. Our eternal hope is secure now in the fatherhood of God. Second um, Thessalonians 2.16, that, that we are given now good hope by the grace of God. Our loneliness is settled. Yes, brother. You have no other father but Father in heaven. Right. Because in, in prescribing that to a man, you're saying he is now my intermediary and he even has a God-like authority to absolve my sins? No way. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ. Only. Yeah. Do you have a question? Oh, okay. Um, what about all our resources? Like I said, he knows what we need before we even ask of it. Do we need to worry about what tomorrow may bring or not bring or what we're going to wear or what we're going to eat? You know, Do we plan? Yes. Do we worry and fret over it? Oh, man, am I going to have a steak to eat tomorrow or not? I, I just, if your budget allows for that and that's the desire of your heart and it's, you know, you're not gluttoning over that or anything, it's not a sin, go enjoy a steak. But... No, he, all of our resources are settled. And not just physical, not just our temporal needs of clothing and what to eat, but our eternal resources, our salvation, all of our protection, our eternal protection, our, our inheritance that we receive through Christ and salvation, all the blessings to us, which of course is going to be Christ himself. Okay? So what we're to see from this initial instruction of our Father 
is that Christ is showing us that through him, through Christ, we glimpse into the eagerness of the Father to hear us. Doesn't it say he delights over us? He's eager to hear us. Wouldn't a true dad just welcome you to come get, sit on his knee and talk to you? That's, that's a loving, reverential concept, you know, reality we should have of God that he welcomes us to come in his presence. Even when we sin, to immediately, quickly go to him, Father, I've sinned against you. I've done this evil in your sight. Please cleanse me and wash me and renew me with your spirit so I can restore that fellowship with you. Or not I can, but you can. And enjoy that. So we glimpse into the eagerness of the Father. He's, he's interested in hearing our prayers. He's desirous to lend us his power, the blessings, the answers to the petitions that we bring to him. You know, he delights in answering these to, to, to serve our best needs. But our desire, our motive and prayer we're going to get to in a minute is to ultimately bring him all the glory. Because it's not about exalting ourselves and exalt, exalting our needs. It's about exalting him and making much of him, recognizing who he is. But in that, we recognize, too, his great mercy and compassion and care for us because he knows how weak we are, how desperately needy we are. So think about how this should impact our prayers especially in the light of Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent forth his spirit into, of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We now share in that same Abba, Holy Dad, Father, I can come to you with all my needs. So, any questions on that? Any thoughts? Yeah. Because who else can forgive us? I mean, yes, we sin against brother or sister. We should seek their forgiveness too. But who else can truly forgive us and truly cleanse us and restore us? It's only God. It's only God. Yes, brother. I think so. I mean, I, I, that's the habit I've developed, you know. Um, he, he conceived the whole redemptive plan, <laughs> if you will. That's kind of how I look at it. But in the same manner, respecting, honoring Christ and his spirit, too, as, as yes, they are the triune God. But, Father, I've, I've got to come to you, you know, in your name, in the name of Christ, because he's my mediator to get to you. But to you, I direct my prayers, and because Christ did it. Our Father. And as well as I think the uh, perspective I've taken is that Jesus has restored my relationship with the Father. Absolutely. Uh, able to talk directly to Absolutely. That's it. That's it. That that's the the revelation He's bringing in all His intercessory work, like that that crude graph I grew to the Father to His glory. Amen. That's it, brother. Yes. Yes. Our Advocate. Always making intercession on our behalf, you know. Absolutely. 
Yep. And down the road, we're going to get into why we pray in the name of Christ because of that very reason. He alone has the righteousness. He alone has the, the mediatorial high priestly work and responsibility that we can go through now. So anyway, hold that thought. Keep that note. <laughs> All right, point two. Who is in heaven? Uranus. Matthew 6 is the only one that includes this. Luke doesn't say that. That's not a dig against Luke. Remember, he's writing from a Gentile perspective. And I'm not going to go into all that just yet. We might next time. But Matthew has a Jewish kingdom high view of God, not that Luke doesn't, perspective. That's why he's writing who is in heaven. If our Heavenly Father lends us his ear in our times of intercession, and as we said, this this settles the question of where our resources come from, and now considering his sovereign throne in heaven, we have no need to fret or worry about any circumstance in our life. For is it not from this heavenly throne room that unending, unlimited, fully majestic resources are available to us in such benevolent mercy. Do we believe that? Do we approach the throne of grace with that in our hearts and minds, believing that? That that's what God has provided for us through Christ, now in the power and the presence of his spirit, to make that a reality for us every time we go into our prayer closets. Not as James talks about, to consume it on our lusts, but as we're going to see, for the glory of God, knowing that everything God does on our behalf is good. It will always be good. Never be a shadow of turning, of deception to say, ha ha, got you that time. Never. Anyway, so in these four words, who is in heaven? Christ is putting to rest really any debate that may have been occurring in this time. Of, of God's location and presence. Remember John 4, the woman at the well? Our father said we're going to worship in the mountain or we will worship in the temple. Yet we see here in, in this instruction the glory, the need of addressing the father's transcendence, his, his eminence, that he is above the finite limits of our world. And although we are to come to him in an attitude of intimacy, we sense the, still this otherness, this separation from us. And that's going to be kind of what, what some commentators describe as that ongoing tension that we face. We know he is in heaven, and there's kind of that, that separateness aspect that we think, how, how is he really hearing what I have to say? And that tension that's there. We're going to address that. Hang on with me. Even though there is a familial relationship brought out here and shown here this should not allow this relationship to breed any contempt in us what i mean is we are to come to the father through christ in boldness yes but not arrogantly not presumptuously when we say who is in heaven it recalls to us who we are and who he is uh, who he is and his otherness what that means And we know that the fatherhood of God is established for a person only through the redeeming work of Christ. It's not something we can contrive on our own. 
And it's through this, this blessed mediatorial work on behalf of his elect who inherit this that we do find for a true child of God, for what is found in true Christianity, what I'm, I'm calling this blessed balance. God is separate but not distant. He is incomprehensible, but he is attainable. He, he certainly is not our buddy. <laughs> he is not our heavenly ATM. And neither is he some, some fatalistic despot that is only out to destroy us that we can't approach in confidence. So what Christ has shown us so far here is in this discourse of how we ought to pray is this privileged, welcoming instruction for those, as Chris, many of you brought out, in this reconciled relationship with God through Christ alone that we have now favor and this great care restored to us, mercy bestowed by a perfectly loving, faithful Heavenly Father. Every good thing, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Like I said, there's no variation, no shifting of shadow. You got a question, bro? Right. There are still some of those paradoxical things even in Scripture that we cannot fully comprehend and address. But even though in life there are matters too that we should not address to the Father, just leave it in His hands. You know what's happened. You know what has occurred. You know best how to resolve these matters. Um, I've, I've experienced that many times in prayer. Just, Lord, I don't know... <laughs> what to do here, what what approach to take, what path to go. i got to leave it fully in your hands and wait for you. And, and he is constantly, constantly faithful in that. And not always in, in responding or answering or, or, or divulging or granting wisdom in the way that I, I perceive it or expect it, but many times through others. And it's like, praise God to see that happen, man. He's faithful in that. Yes, brother. Yeah. Yep. Amen. And we have the Holy Spirit definitely to help us to depend on that. You know, if you, if you just struggle with prayer itself, he, he will aid you in that. Faithfully aid you in that. Yes, sister. I, I would I would add to that arguing against him, but wrestling with him absolutely, you know, like Jacob did, you know. If 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 his glory is in mind, and good 
is the outcome, wrestle. But to argue and say, you know, my way or else, or yes, brother. James 4. Yeah. Absolutely. Amen. If it's your will to reveal as to why, I'll leave it there. If not, I'll leave it there. Rest it. Yeah. All right. Hallowed be your name. That was also in Luke. Sorry, that's my ditto sign, so it means it's in both. Hallowed be your name, both in Matthew 6 and in Luke. And here we see God's priority and his prerogative. His hallowed name. It sanctified in the Greek, hagiadzo. It means consecrated or holy, but this is not to make God sanctified or to make him holy. He already is. But what it is, because, you know, the demons know he's holy too. Mark one twenty four, but it means that we are to honor his name, to speak and live in a way that exemplifies the holiness of his name, the goodness of his name, how hallowed and high it is to, to highly esteem and revere and treasure the name of God as it is most holy and most worthy. And we find this, pri- this is the priority the Father is to rightly have in all of our lives, every aspect of our lives especially in our in our prayers and our time of communion. But as I said, there's a there's still that tension here that we, we need to address where to come to God as a father who is in heaven in a unique Christ accomplished intimacy, yet we are still to maintain this great reverence toward God and his name. And he knows the condition of our heart if we are coming with the right attitude, like you said, brother, if we are truly coming in humility and Christ honoring, God honoring. But this tension emphasizes in our minds and hearts the gulf that's between his great, his, his, he is majestic, okay, and our sinfulness, his perfection and our imperfection, his holiness, that we are unholy, his omnipotence and our weakness. Remember what happened in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, what did they bring before the Lord? Strange fire, arrogant. Oh, let's try this. Let's see if this works. Dangerous approach. Disregarding the commands of God, his instructions, the, the direct instruction and example they'd received from Aaron. And what happened? Immediate consumption with fire, man, gone. This, this, God is a rightly jealous. He is rightly jealous for his honor. And, and he does not plead for respect. We, we must all be ever so careful never to approach God in a, in a flippant, casual manner or an attitude like these two fools did. He is holy, his name is holy, and to be revered. And God's honor is what several commentators have called to be the obsession of the Christian's community today. That's what needs to be a reality in our church. God's honor is, is our obsession, our, our joy, our focus. His rightful honor is tainted so much by what, have, what is called the church today. 
Um, I was just thinking of Ezekiel 36.22, that for the sake of his holy name, God acted on behalf of them, but they profaned it. And, and thinking about this, just how meaningless our efforts will be unless we intentionally and primarily honor God's name in all that we do. We, we purposefully and intentionally set out with our hearts in a humble attitude in all that we do, driving, whatever work you're doing, marketing, accounting, travel agency, and all that you do to honor his name and bring glory to him. Raising children, cooking food, taking care of a home, driving to and from men's study. I know we share a lot of that, brother. <laughs> just just the challenges of traffic. In all of that, I want God's name to be honored so that whenever somebody looks at me, they see a reflection of Jesus Christ and I can uphold his name as saying, this is who I serve, this is who I live for, this is who I honor. Wow, getting close to out of time. So how is it that we are to see and, and understand the name of God in its greatest manifestation? I'm thinking of a specific scripture. Turn to John 17 real quick, verse 6. John seventeen six. We're going to get into this in weeks ahead, but I had to bring this one up here, thinking about the name of God and, and manifesting in its greatness. John seventeen six. It says, "Christ speaking here. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word." Our in our lives, keeping the word of God, treasuring. Christ's word richly in our hearts will manifest the name of God in our life and our actions, our words, our attitudes, and all that we do. Now to pray, hallowed be thy name, is for us to, to personally attribute to God the, the holiness that is already his, always has been, always will supremely be. And this begins in the heart, as I said, of every believer. This is what, what Peter means by, by hallowing, to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, in, in 1 Peter 3.15, which, which results in, as we honor God, as we approach him as our Heavenly Father who is in heaven to, with a desire and a motive to hallow his name in our lives, our life is going to be sanctified because this, as we know, comes through his word, and the spirit of God. And we're also, we live in conformity to his will. That, that the sacred promise to us is that God himself will reward those who diligently seek him, who seek after him, with this attitude, with hallowing his name. In Hebrews eleven six. So our means of seeking him is growing in the revealed knowledge about him through his voice, through his word to us, so that we may have a true knowledge of him, not, not spasmodic, flippant, indifferent, or worldly tainted, but coming through his word, revealed to us by the Spirit of God, enjoyed and communed in in prayer. This is manifesting God. Just thinking real quick of Psalm. Do you have something, bro? Amen. That's what, like, 
Right. So even in the renewal of Israel and even gathering, you know, spiritual Israel now is ultimately for his namesake. That's it. That's it. Which which is another way of really expressing his glory. Yeah. You know. Do all things to the glory of God, to the hallowing of his name, for his name's sake. All of that is multifaceted aspect of, of our motivation toward God. And also Psalm ninety one um, unknown author, but this timeless psalm, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And with a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. This is a wonderful promise of the Father to us through Christ. All right. I'm going to leave the rest for next week because I don't want to I don't want to skim over your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, brother. Name is just referring to God, Elohim, Yahweh, Father. but God because his name is holy. His name is unique above all other names. Yes, brother. If, yeah, if if the heart attitude in it, what I mean is if the motivation in, in it is is sincerity and, and humility, recognizing that, you know, who you're praying to and what you're asking for, if you want to use this as a guide, absolutely. If you just pray it to pray it to pray it to get through and say, okay, I prayed my prayer today, no, no. Or to make it, as as I said, you know, like if I pray this, the holy ATM will grant me all the riches and things. I don't know if you, you guys are familiar with Hagen, you know, and all his blasphemy. I went out and read some of his books about, and I didn't read them. I saw the titles, but about how this name it claim it thing works. Oh man, it was disgusting. It was pitiful to think that you could approach God and just say, "Oh, if I pray this prayer." I'll have financial success and riches and be set for the rest of my life. The sad thing is people are buying into that. But anyway. It's a good way to kind of put categories around the way that we pray. Because sometimes I know even for myself, when you go into prayer, you can be scattered. And to give a flow. Wrong with that, right. But in some sense, this kind of slows us down in some way, too, to be intentional about how we're praying. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, we're all right in tune. That's what I'm going to eventually get to at the end because Christ was very intentional (laughs) because he is God. 
in breaking this down in such simple matters for us. Because, as you're saying, our Father who art in heaven, I mean, that can expand to such extensive worship. You know, it's not just da 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 it's like wow you you can you can meditate on that and and worship in that and like Brian said brother you can just go through each of these and it gives you a flow and an order and and you know where it starts you know all things begin and end with God and then once we get into the specific needs and requests for ourselves yeah that comes secondary yeah so I'll, I'll get in, I'll show a couple acrostics that others have that are very helpful in this and for for an order and a flow of prayer and a reminder absolutely absolutely keep your keep your heart focused your mind focused absolutely yeah yes brother oh sister oh the theological um, <laughs> thank you. Theology of Christ intercessory work. <laughs> Thank you. I, taco? No. I just, I, I just didn't write that out again this week. Sorry. All right. Let's let's go a little bit early to worship. We'll pick up here next week, Lord willing.